In episode 134 of the Cinematologist podcast, Dario talks to director Frank Pavich about his documentaries Jodorowsky's Dune and NYHC. Neil reviews new Blu-ray releases of Champion, directed by Mark Robson and starring Kirk Douglas, Sergio Corbucci's The Great Silence, Jean-Pierre Melville's Enfant Terrible, and Alistair McClellan's music film on the band Saint-Étienne, I've Been Trying to Tell You. If you enjoy the show, please consider rating and reviewing us on your podcast provider, and please share on social media. It really helps us reach new audiences. But now, on with the show. Welcome to the Cinematologist Podcast. I'm Neil Fox, and joining me as ever, I'm delighted to say, is Dario Linares. Hello, Dario. Good morning, Neil. How are you doing? Good to see you. Good to see you too. Uh, I'm doing well. I'm boosted, so... Ah, me too. <laughs> uh, my arm's a bit sore, but other than that, no no side effects. I'm feeling pretty good, ready for a Christmas break. Nice. Yeah, yeah, me too. I mean, um, just finished my last couple of sessions in person. I mean, we, we carried on in person, even though, even in light of the recommendations to, to work at home. But, you know, it wasn't too bad because I had a couple of screenings actually at the end of end of the year you know so it's funny it's even at university is that sense of oh let's just do something nice for the last session you know what I mean it's like even everybody's like had enough of learning by the time the last week comes along it's funny how that 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 carries over from school but you know there was a sort of point to it in terms of so on on Mondays I teach the first years and yeah I mean it's been it's been tricky you know, in many ways, because we're we're not in a great room, and there's I have to do eight hours straight. So by the last session, I'm kind of dying. And then the first one's always difficult because it's nine o'clock on a Monday morning, and there's that study that says that students are unable to function before ten o'clock. But anyway, I, I sort of amalgamated them into groups so we could watch Matinee, you know, the Joe Dante movie, because I wanted to sort of talk a little bit about audiences and the theatrical experience and this kind of thing and uh yeah i mean to be honest in one of the groups it it, it just sparked off a, a really like, good interesting conversation about you know how we watch is the the theatrical experience as we understand it sacred and you know as it's constructed as for art house viewers as you know particularly i think and and really sort of mainstream western viewers more broadly have this very clearly ingrained you must sit down concentrate don't make any noise you know what I mean there's this sort of reverence for the for the cinematic artifact that you know I, I kind of believe in myself you know to, to a certain degree but it's interesting how you know in that film it sort of shows how that's very constructed and there are so many different ways of watching and all of the all of the quote-unquote gimmicks that I've often attached to the theatrical experience to give it something new. I mean, the latest one, obviously, is, uh, has been 3D in the last sort of 10, 15 years, which has gone away again now. But, you know, rumble vision and smell vision and all of this kind of stuff and having theatre kind of spill out from the screen like the Rocky Horror Picture Show. It's a movie about that kind of thing. So, uh, yeah, and they 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 were, the second group particularly, just, just loved it. And I think they appreciated as well it was quite a... For a family movie, it's a very sophisticated piece of sort of meta storytelling, which you don't really, you know, often with family movies, you don't really appreciate sometimes how sophisticated they are when they're very good. Sorry, I just know that there's drilling going on. There's workmen everywhere. There's no space. So apologies if you're getting some interference. But yeah, I mean, you like you like Joe Dante, don't you, Neil? Yeah, I'm a big Joe Dante fan. Um, I love Matinee. 
I think it's I think yeah I think it's brilliant I think it's genuinely entertaining and also really smart and sort of grows year on year I think as as we get further away from yeah the primacy of the 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 cinema space it's really great that that your sort of film students got stuff from it you know because I think it's he's a filmmaker that kind of gets written off as a kind of very schlocky mainstream filmmaker but I think at his best and in that run from sort of you know gremlins and matinee and the burbs and stuff he's a really smart filmmaker so yeah i'm I'm, that 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 warmed my cockles when i heard that you would uh you'd screened that and that they'd liked it anything else that you've uh been watching with them yeah well then on the tuesday i took the philosophy on screen students so this is an optional class that i do and i took those guys actually to the cinema so the screenings on a monday were in the university but we actually managed to get out and go up to the, the lewis depot which is a very nice sort of modern cinema to watch uh, Don't Look Up, the uh, new Adam McKay movie who did uh, The Big Short, which I'm still a big fan of. I think it's a, a really good film. Not so much Vice. And, and this one, I think, is, is, is better than Vice in entertainment factor. I mean, don't get me wrong. I think that the, the star power is, is uh, doing a lot of the heavy lifting. I mean, it is stacked when, you, when it comes to familiar faces. And... You know, you just see certain things, <laughs> certain castings, you just think, yeah, that's just funny in and of itself. So Meryl Streep's the president and, you know, she does a sort of female Donald, Donald Trump version and her chief of staff, who is also her son, is Jonah Hill, um, who's just it's just hilarious. And and then um, Kate Blanchett is brilliant as a sort of, you know, blonde Fox News hostess. You know what I mean? Anchor, who who is just all of the, the 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 horrendous kind of vacuousness tied to high intelligence. You know what I mean? It's like she speaks four languages and is super bright, but has this sort of narcissistic vacuousness to her as well. And you know, in the leads, it, it's funny because because uh, Jennifer Lawrence is very much a sort of anchoring point for the audience in terms of what is go- what is going on here. You know what I mean? And then Leonardo DiCaprio plays. It's funny because he kind of plays against type as a sort of schlubby um, scientist, you know, astronomer who, uh, along with Jennifer Lawrence, discover this comet which is coming to Earth, you know. So it's a sort of satire on deep impact and that kind of thing, end of the world story. But it's very much, you know, a political and media-based satire and the fact that, you know, we're living in this sort of conspiracy theory era nobody can agree on factuality. And it's just... If you're into all of that stuff, then you, there's a lot that you'll see, you'll have seen before, and you understand the satire, and it's been done in many, many other quarters. And the the hit rate of the laughs is not super high. Some of the jokes land, some some of them not too much. But the casting it's, is great, and it's really watchable. And Mark, Mark Rylance is this sort of Steve Jobs, Mark Zuckerberg type figure who's completely impo- who can't kind of act in a social environment at all, you know what I mean? It's completely socially inept and then invents this into, you know, entire sort of social media in order to circumvent having to be social in that sense. So, you know, it hits all of those marks, but I think, you know, it's, it's watchable. It's not a complete mess. The script kind of is a little bit meandering in that, in that sense, but I I think a a lot of the students enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, I mean, I'd wait for it and just watch it on a Saturday night. I think it's that kind of thing at home, you know? Yeah, I think it's on Netflix from Christmas Eve, so yeah, so I shall I shall try and catch it before our end of year taping. Um, yeah, I mean I, I mean I really love Adam McKay, particularly, you know the Will Ferrell stuff, and I'm a big fan of The Big Short. I've not seen Vice, so that's what I've been watching. Um, but you've got a couple of uh, Blu-rays to uh, talk about, that right? 
That's right. Yep, got a few to give a quick shout out to. Um, two from Masters of Cinema, um, who are releasing Kirk Douglas in Champion, which is one of his earlier roles, um, where he plays a boxer, kind of really poor, sort of rags to riches, back to rags tale. Um, directed by Mark Robson, and it's a good movie. It's Kirk Douglas is great because I think he's. I, I just love him. I think he's, you know, he's maybe my favourite sort of classic Hollywood film star. I just, I'll watch him in anything. I think he's absolutely brilliant. Um, but what's kind of worth watching it, one of the reasons it's worth watching is the the, the fight scenes are really, really great. You know, the, the, you can sort of see the the influence on Scorsese and Raging Bull. You know, mm. the, they're really fast. The camera's really close. Um, you really get a sense of being sort of in the thick of it in a way which just feels really kind of kinetic and startling for the for the period you know it's it's really really good um and his ability to just go from being utterly despicable to kind of really vulnerable and you know sort of, sort of eliciting empathy i think is is kind of second to none um yeah it's a really really fun movie with some great sequences yeah and the other thing that uh, i watched is uh sergio Corbucci's the great silence with klaus kinski and jean-louis trintignant Trintinho. Um and I love this movie. I think I saw it first when I did an event called Spaghetti Cinema uh, oh, yeah. in the early 2010s around spaghetti westerns. Um, and I had not seen it, and it's absolutely like it's just incredible, you know. So Trintignant plays um, this, yeah, kind of assassin called Silence because <laughs> he's had his throat cut and he can't talk. Great name. Uh, and he's got this kind of weird moral thing where he won't shoot first. Oh, he's, he's not a serious ass. He's a kind of yeah. He's, he's a hired killer, and but he'll only he'll only sort of respond. He's super fast, but he won't shoot first. And Kinski plays this absolutely kind of villainous um, gang leader. And it was one of the films that was kind of supposedly a big inspiration on The Hateful Eight because it's all set in the right. snowy in yeah, the snow. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and it looks absolutely beautiful. But it's kind of like you watch that and then you watch Hateful Eight and you're like. I think the snow is the only the only real inspiration I can see because this film is so good. Like, and the politics are so interesting between the characters. You know, it's really murky, but it's also just absolutely fabulous. Yeah, and the new the new release is absolutely stunning. It looks spectacular. So I, I, I'm I'm hoping people have seen it. But if you haven't, that would be I would put it on your, my Christmas list for sure. It's a beautiful edition, and it's just such a good movie interesting like you know Kinski and Kirk Douglas are kind of actors with you know certain reputations but on screen they're just phenomenal like he's just his presence is you just cannot take your eyes off him there's this you know this genuine fear of what is he going to do next and how is he going to do it like which which is just so so rare and it just sort of leaps off the screen even on a even on the telly um yeah Great. so and the, and the Morricone score is spectacular and also I watched a couple of BFI releases one was they've released Melville, John Pierre Melville's first film, which is uh, L'Enfant Terrible, which was his Great um, movie. his him directing Jean Cocteau uh, script. And I was watching it again, and I was thinking, this is a great movie. I'm not sure it's a great Melville movie because he's clearly enthralled to Cocteau and like Jean Vigo particularly. Um, but he does such a good job of just kind of marshalling the script. And so the story is, you know, essentially about these two siblings who are just. Oh, they're just they're just horrible, but they've got this incredible relationship, you know. And I was watching, and I was I was just thinking, like, when this relationship is, you know, psychosexual, everything about it, you know, like the main character Paul has this kind of deeply homoerotic kind of love for his schoolmate who kind of throws a snowball at him in the first 
five minutes of the film that kind of puts him in bed for the rest of the film, essentially. It's kind of pure malaise, pure hysteria. And it's just so bold, you know, just like it's just so convinced that this is a story worth telling that everything just falls into place. The performances are great. And then there's this really, really kind of beautiful sequence where the his sister, the sister Elizabeth kind of marries marries wealth and then the husband dies literally before they even had the honeymoon. He goes on a business trip and dies. So she sort of left a rattle around this big house and she brings her brother in and the circle her circle of friends they all live in this house and then he creates their their bedroom which is where they spend the first half of the film in this gallery so it's kind of like it's the same space but it's not and the sound design because obviously they have these really intimate conversations which is what they have in the start of the film but there's this echo because they're in this that just makes you just you feel like you're watching this performance in such a beautiful way and i i was watching i was thinking i think that one of the debts that's not really acknowledged in terms of the work of Charlie Kaufman is the debt to Cocteau, particularly Synecdoche, New York. and Yeah, it's uh, that distancing effect, isn't it, you know? Yeah, and just the, you know, the, the kind of the, the kind of the jarring shifts between is this real, is this dream, where, where are we? And just the confidence to be like, oh, I'm just going to tell you that this is now, there's this great moment in, in L'Enfant Terrible where the, the voiceover says like, you know, the performance started at 11 which is so you kind of start in this auditorium and then it tracks back into the bedroom yeah. the performance is just them shouting at each other you know it's the performance of being siblings but it creates this really fascinating sense of reminding you that you're watching that you're watching a movie and that none of this is, is probably real um it's absolutely absolutely glorious and the last thing i wanted to mention because i think it's a it's a music film so it might lead us into the conversation a little bit that you've had for today's episode is um, Alastair McClellan's film for Saint Etienne. I've been trying to tell you, which is a film that accompanies their latest album, and they they do this a lot. They have filmmakers, particularly Paul Kelly, make these kind of really wonderful films that accompany accompany their releases, where essentially they give the filmmaker free reign to go off and take the music and make something. And normally the films are very London based, you know, they're kind of psychogeographical narratives around London, like Finisterre and uh, how we used to live, but. This is a road trip around Britain. It's about 45 minutes. And it's a really gorgeous film about just sort of free youth, basically. So, you know, young, sort of young adults, sort of teens and early 20s, just sort of being in in Britain, partying in fields and, you know, sort of jumping in waterfalls and things like that. And all shot quite slow and kind of feel somewhere between sort of Claire Denise Beautravai and Mia Hansen Lowe's work plus sort of face photo shoots of the 80s you know sort of feels feels interested in class and there's a beautiful sequence at Port Merion and it was I loved it because I think one of the things I've really gravitated towards this year is pleasurable watches you know things that give me pleasure just from watching them like the aesthetic you know like that there's a care in making this look good and and use the visuals to kind of to be the the point of it and the meaning sort of comes from that because of the construction of the images and particularly the music but it's absolutely sensuous and gorgeous. Um, yeah, you know, it's one of those things you think: how how can you really shoot Blackpool to make it look like, you know, Vegas anymore? And he does an amazing job that you know kind of makes you want to go back to Blackpool. Um, I'm sure it won't look like that when with my own eyes, but it is wonderful, you know. And it's a really interesting film about yeah, what are the young people up to today and how you know, um, yeah, it's 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 absolutely fab, and that's a really lovely release with lots of features as well. Lovely. Great to hear that. Yeah, I definitely want to uh, re-watch the, the Enfant Terrible, but the Corbucci one as well. I don't think I've seen that, so that's definitely might not be a Christmas watch. And uh, yeah, with that in mind, this is our penultimate episode, so we do have our end-of-year special to come, which we're going to tape, I think, 
just after Christmas and hopefully release in between, in that lovely period between Christmas and New Year. So everybody's looking for something to do by about the 28th, aren't they? So uh, yeah, hopefully our our Christmas uh, review will be um, up by then. But yeah, today's episode. So I know I think we probably trailed that this was going to be the Michel Chion double bill, but actually I think that that is going to be more suited to the first episode of the new year because it's going to be fairly, uh, you know, a big one and, and fairly intense and, and uh, you know, academically heavy in certain respects. So just with this run up to Christmas, we thought we would put out first the interview that I did with Frank Pavich, who is the director of Jodorowsky's Dune. And yeah, I mean, it's just something that I, it's a film that I watched in light of watching uh, the new Denis Villeneuve Dune, of course. And then I rewatched Lynch's Dune, which, as I've said before, I've kind of got a soft spot for, despite its flaws. And I hadn't seen this documentary, this fabled documentary that uh, many, it won uh, quite a few awards and a lot of people have sort of pointed back to it about how it encapsulates and takes us through, interrogates this this film that Jodorowsky was trying to put together and never came to fruition, it never got made, but somehow has become a kind of mythical non-artifact in the, in the history, particularly, I think, of science fiction cinema of the 80s and 90s. And I think one of the, the key elements of the movie is that that sense of how much this this film that never got made has its tentacles in all sorts of... Uh, of blockbuster cinema and and science fiction cinema that would come afterwards. So it was really really looking forward to to speaking to Frank and also in the build up I uh, I watched his first documentary which is entitled um, NYHC which is about the the hardcore scene of uh, hardcore I mean what would you call it Neil is it just hardcore metal music or just hardcore music is that the genre? Uh yeah I mean it's kind of, it's it well it's a sort of an offshoot of punk really so it's commonly known as hardcore punk but I think yeah. hardcore fans like to call it hardcore because it's not punk it's kind of, yeah, sort yeah, of after yeah. punk um, and metal sort of comes from that period but it's again that's very different um, yeah it's a very different thing isn't it yeah and it's not it, but, but it's not it's not sort of you know the, the glam rock strand and it's not kind of nirvana either it's it is it's its own thing isn't it i think it's not grunge yeah. No, no, certainly not grunge. But you could mix it up for that, if, for the uninitiated. Well, yeah, and there's that great documentary, 1991, The Year Punk Broke, which kind of, you know, sort of is about that sort of sonic youth um, Nirvana kind of breakthrough because they were sort of, a, they were essentially punk bands that came other things like post-punk or in Nirvana's case, what was termed grunge. Yeah, and what's interesting about that doc is that it's kind of, yeah, it's it's just after the wave of bands that are most synonymous with hardcore, like Black Flag and um, uh, Crass and things like that. Yeah, so I talk about that and, of course, Jodorowsky's Dune with, with Frank. So uh, hopefully you'll enjoy enjoy this. I definitely enjoyed uh, talking to him, so let's get into that now. My ambition was tremendous. I wanted to make something sacred, a película que diera las alucinaciones de LSD. Si tomara LSD to change the young mind, of all the world. Michel Seduc said to me, I want to make a new picture with you. What do you want to do? I say, Dune. And he said, yes. C'était le plus beau livre de science-fiction, la Bible de la science-fiction, succès d'édition mondiale. I didn't read Dune, but I have a friend who said it was fantastic. 
3,000 drawings. I shoot the picture, point of view, movement of the camera, dialogue. Designing the spaceships, the clothes, the whole look of his world. The castle. Open the mouth. The spaceship came in the tongue. His vision was so huge, so beyond what anybody else was doing at that time. Things that George Lucas wasn't even going to try with Star Wars. It's enormous. Hollow's genius was finding the right people. David Carradine, Mick Jagger, Dali as the mad emperor of the galaxy. Dali, they can I have a burning giraffe? All right, all right, we'll have burning giraffe. Orson Welles. Yeah, I say, I don't want to do it. I say, if you do the picture, I will hire the chef of the restaurant and you will eat as here every day. And I say, I do it. Giger nunca había hecho películas. I say to Giger, I need you as you are. Alejandro completely motivated you. It was wonderful. We will change the world. People did not do this film because they were afraid of his imagination. This is a movie that has its fingerprints all over so many other movies. Blade Runner, William Gibson, Matrix. Giger, he make the monster of Alien. And Hollywood start to use my group. It always leads back to Jodorowsky. Could be fantastic, no? So do you spend your time between Europe and the US? Uh, very rarely do I go to the U.S. You know, I, I grew up in New York, but I have not lived in the U.S. for probably coming up on 10 years now. So I basically sort of, you know, I live in, Gen in Geneva, Switzerland. And so we sort of split our time between here and Croatia, which is where both uh, my wife and I, are, our roots are from there. It's funny because... New York seems to be one of these places that sort of draws people in, but you've kind of uh, gone the other way, you know, in that in that sense. Yeah, it's it's just it's uh, it's great. You know, I get nostalgic. You know, when I watch movies, you know, I lived in L.A. for a long time too, and I get nostalgic if I watch movies in New York or L.A. But you know, the reality of living there is uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, thank you. So you said there that you know you grew up in in New York. Were you always a kid of the movies from from the start? I mean, I was a kid of, you know, I always loved movies and stuff, but, you know, I can't say that I was cool enough to know anything good. You know, this was, <laughs> nothing was terribly... That sounds familiar. Yeah, right. Everybody wants to paint, you know, the picture of themselves that like, you know, they were the original, you know, Velvet Underground fan. And it's like, no, there was, you know, no. So different movies, non-mainstream movies were not really accessible to me. Where, you know, in my world that I grew up in, it was very mainstream. So I didn't really, you know, it wasn't until I got older. It wasn't until the very end of high school and certainly in college when I could sort of see different things. And that, you know, the biggest blockbusters were not the only movies around. There was, there was other interesting, strange things. So I guess when I was like probably 17, 18, my mind sort of started to, you know, expand into, into different things. Yeah, no, it sounds very familiar. When I, I sort of went to film school slash university, and yeah, for the first six months, was kind of realizing that that film wasn't what I thought it was. So, I mean, did, did you go to did you go to film school or you know study in that sort of environment? I had a very strange path. I went to uh, uh, the School of Visual Arts in New York, um, right, for only for a year because it was very expensive. And I realized that if I went there for four years, I wasn't going to get out with anything more than knowing how to point a video camera right. at a TV monitor and get feedback. Right. Like, oh, it's incredible. Look at the art. <laughs> and I was like, that, well, I'm going to go broke doing this. This is not worth it. So I became friends with this guy from California. 
in school, and he convinced me that we should leave SVA, leave the School of Visual Arts, and move to California together. And that's where, you know, it's all going to be. So I said, okay. And so we agreed to do that. And right before we were going to go, he, uh, he bailed. And he wow. said he couldn't go. So I ended up going by myself, and I ended up going to a very strange school, which I don't think even exists anymore, called Columbia College Hollywood. And Columbia College Hollywood was the complete antithesis of the School of Visual Arts. I mean, it was like it was like a technical school, mm. basically. Like, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. when you graduate, you would get like a set of tools, and that was, you know, like a toolbox. It was a crazy thing. So we went, so I went there for a year and it was horrible. And I believe, in my opinion, I think it was a scam. Right. For foreign exchange students, because 80% of the students were from other countries and we didn't learn anything of value. It was really atrocious. And I think that the school was created to take money from them and to kind of keep them hostage. Like either you pay us tuition or you lose your student visa and you have to go back to wherever. So after a year of that school, then 15 of us got together and we we approached one of the teachers that we liked, I guess the only teacher that we liked, and we all left with the teacher. Wow, that is radical. <laughs> it was really weird. We rented a loft in downtown yeah. <laughs> LA and we made up our own school and we hired other teachers Fantastic. Um, to teach us everything. And we sort of crammed four years into one year um, and, uh, and we did that. And it was really you know, fascinating. It was all hands-on learning of everything you know, through trial and error. And then the school collapsed after that year. We couldn't, we didn't have the network to bring in other right. people. But yeah. strangely, uh, years later, maybe five years ago, something like that, 10 years ago, uh, I mean, this is when I did this, it was back in 1993. Um, yeah, I was going to say early 90s. Yeah. So it was, you know, it was way back when I would say maybe 10 years ago, I came across this school in LA called the, I think it's called the Los Angeles Film School. And I, I looked it up. Someone told me about it, and I looked it up. And the guy that was heading it at the time was the guy that we approached, and the guy that we took for our school. And I so I contacted him, and we you know met up one day for lunch, and he was telling me all about the school, and it was exactly the same concept we had, just with money behind it. It was a one-year program, really intensive, and it was all about learning. And the whole idea of the school was that you should spend every minute there if you have a spare minute of the day, you should be doing something. You should be filming something, editing something, learning something. And that's exactly our school. So I guess the idea was good. We just didn't, we didn't have the anything behind us to make it really work. It sounds romantically ideal from my perspective of sitting in the highly regulated university system of teaching students for three years. It's kind of like, let's right? just go and do this for a year. It sounds great. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if it was the smartest um, idea. I don't really know, but you know, but it was for us, it, I guess it seemed to work, you know? So did that provide the basis then in terms of meeting people, getting the skills, obviously, but having a group of people around you maybe and, and sort of give you the confidence or inspiration to go and think about doing a, a, a documentary? I mean, a little bit. I mean, you know, the, the people I, the school was very small. It was only, you know, 10 or you know, 15 of us, I think, at the most. And so, so it was definitely a, a tightly knit group. But I think I want to say that I learned the most through volunteering on other student films, like not within our school, but um, like AFI, the American Film Institute, you know, is a very prestigious two-year program in, in LA. And the second year students 
their thesis films are like they're miniature features. I mean, they're shorts, mm-hmm. but sure. they're true, real budgets and, and real professionals come and donate their time to work on them. And so not that I was a professional, but I was, you know, really knew nothing, but I donated my time on, on several of them. And it was, I mean, we're talking a short film, a half hour film that would take three weeks to shoot. I mean, these things were massive. So through there, I really learned like how do films work? What is a film set? What does this person do? What does that person do? And because you're all doing it for free, everyone's there with the right, you know, with, with the correct mindset of teaching yeah, 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 and, yeah, yeah. and networking. Sure. So professionals will come in order to network also. So I ended up learning so much there and really start anything I did after that, I really credit to those AFI films that I uh, managed to, to work on. Were documentaries always the thing that you wanted to do? No, it was a totally spur of the moment thing, sort of. Um, I didn't study documentary film or anything like that. And it really all came about because, as I, you know, I, I grew up in New York and then I moved to Los Angeles. And whenever I would go back to New York, let's say for like the Christmas holidays, I would go to hardcore shows, to like, you know, punk clubs mm. to see hardcore bands play. And so you're part of that scene itself anyway. Very peripherally. You know, I mean, really, like nobody seeing me on the street would go, oh, yeah, that's a hardcore guy. Like I have no tattoos, <laughs> nothing like that. Um, yeah, but yeah, I would yeah, go yeah. to those shows and then, and they were really fun. And then I would go back to LA and, and, you know, a friend of mine who was also from New York, living in California, we realized that we really missed those shows in, uh, in New York. So we decided that, you know, we kind of came up with this idea. Well, like, well, let's document those shows. Let's document what's going on there because the things change all the time. You know, that, that, that scene is completely mm. dysfunctional and, you know, nobody really gets along. So every <laughs> few months, bands break up and people are arguing. So we said, let's go back this summer. We're talking summer of 1995. And let's just find a bunch of bands. Let's interview them. Let's shoot live performances. And let's kind of put it together as like a snapshot in time, not as a, you know, anthropological study or the history of, but like just what was happening in the summer of 1995 with these bands that, these diverse bands that we liked and diverse in terms of there was like, you know, one of the bands were Hare Krishnas. One of the bands were like these, you know, cliche tough guys. One of the band, you know, like one band was from the Bronx. One band was from the suburbs of Long Island. So within this music community that most people would say it all sounds the same i.e it all sounds horrible to them to us there was you know i love those bands and i love that music and it was something different but it really that was the first documentary that i ever had any part of and it was my own produced it and directed it and edited it paid for it and everything and it was because i just wanted to capture something before it went away yeah there's an interesting kind of implicit contradiction in in the documentary which you've kind of highlighted there where on the one hand they're saying you know this is a a scene we're all a collective we all kind of are a family and then you see them kind of like you know like you say it's completely dysfunctional in in other ways which is interesting to watch but you know obviously that they open up quite a lot to you did you do you have to spend time getting to know them? Was there, was there a little bit of not anthropological study, but do you know what I mean? This, this, these subjects, I need, to, I need to make sure they trust me kind of thing. I think it just sort of happened naturally. Right. You know, I think, you know, I had no connection to them. It wasn't like we knew each other really beforehand. Like most of them I met, actually I met all of them that summer. You know, we, we shot 
I think I was in New York for four weeks. We shot for three weeks. I met everybody that during that period. So there was no history between us. But I think it was two things. One, I think that they, or I guess it was more than two things. I guess mainly it was, first of all, it was, I like to think that they saw that I was genuine about mm. it, you know, that I was genuinely interested and was going to do something cool, you know, for everybody uh, that would benefit everybody. And maybe more importantly than that, it was the time period. I think it was, it's different than it, what, than it is today where everything is sort of filmed and everything is sort of out there. This was like, a, it was a serious thing. It wasn't, in order to do it, it was, it was, it was technologically a weird time. You know, we weren't yeah, yeah, shooting yeah. on film, thank God, because who could afford such a thing? But we weren't shooting on the cameras that are available now for a couple thousand dollars. Like we, we shot it on a, on a professional news camera, essentially, like a yeah, beta yeah, yeah. SP. Like right. you know, we take this $100,000 camera into these clubs and into these people's homes and interview them. So I think that gave it some weight maybe to them, you know, that it was something serious. Um, and that it was something, it wasn't just a bunch of kids making something stupid. You know, it was like I hired a, a cinematographer who was actually the, cinema, the cinematography teacher from that school that we created. You know, we hired him and brought him to New York. And uh, so he was much older. He was like, you know, in his 50s, I guess, at the time. So to these, to us and these, you know, these kids, these bands of kids that are 18, 20 years old, that's a real adult. Now I'm close to 50. So I feel like, oh, I still feel like I'm young, but you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But back then, I think there was this big difference, which I think sort of gave it this level of gravitas, I suppose, or seriousness to them, maybe that, you know, wasn't something nonsensical. Yeah. I mean, looking back now, you know, obviously sort of thinking about the aesthetics of it and what you're talking about in, in sort of shooting on early gen dv you know whether it's dv or whether it's like a like you say a news camera but it has that sort of you know dogma 95 aesthetic with it being 95 as well where you're in this in between state and like reminds me a little bit of of kind of hoop dreams and and uh you know elrond morris stuff and and it, it definitely i think sits aesthetically in that you know it, it's a film but it has the this kind of in between tv film look and grain about it but yeah it's uh it really sort of has that immediacy of the of those kinds of productions i think i mean did you ever sort of look back and think yeah that actually did do something interesting when you consider what 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 was going on in filmmaking sort of more broadly i mean i i look back on it like it's i, I still really like that movie i mean it's really limited i suppose you know we made it for nothing but but it's really it, just to see those bands and to see that moment captured is is great. Like I really, I kind of, I sort of modeled it after um, the decline of Western civilization. Right, right, know, right. Yeah, like yeah. Taking all these bands and it's these sit down interviews with them. So it's not this sort of verite style. You're not really following them around. You're just sort of sitting these guys down and hearing them talk about crazy things. And then and you have that sort of you know the sort of staid sit down interviews intermixed with this, you know, insane live footage of which, you know, I don't think there's any music scene in existence that's that's anything close to it, where the audience is literally a part of the, you know, literally a part of the show, where they take the microphone and quote unquote sing and or scream along. It's a really fascinating world that I still find it's really unique and really and really exciting. So it definitely is in terms of also the the, the fact that it was ninety five and that's the year that many people sort of say the internet is invented and it just really makes you think about the sort of the pre and post world of DIY culture 
an expression. And it it's so different now where if you're wanting to sort of create something yourself, it's always about, there's always a sort of built-in, how am I going to distribute this? How am I going to monetize this? And there was none of that kind of with these guys. It's almost kind of a rejection of all of that. And, and alongside that, there is this sort of implicit young men searching for their identity, which is definitely something that's still a big <laughs> topic today, of course. That's true. That's true. It was weird. You know, it's it's so strange because it really was like, you know, the beginning of this, you know, turn in technology and all that. But, you know, but we were, it was all beyond our grasp. Like there was no digital editing. You know, there was no Avid, or I guess there was an Avid, but it cost a gazillion dollars to us. Yeah, so you yeah, couldn't yeah. do it that way. So I had to take, you know, this movie was shot on videotape, you know, so I had to take each tape, transfer it to old three-quarter umatic inch tape. And then I managed to borrow three-quarter in two three-quarter inch decks from a friend. I think one I bought somewhere online, you know, not online because there was no online. I bought one in some thrift store and one I borrowed from a friend and I would work with these, you know, 40-year-old Russian basically editing decks, you know, editing tape to tape, which is horrific, which is just a horrific, it took four years to edit the thing because it was just, there was no technology to help. It was just, it was a horrible, horrible experience, you know, for sure. But I learned a lot. So when you, when you finished that, was there a sort of sense that I want to make more features or I need to, you know, you say you did that for no money. So clearly, you know, that whenever anybody's doing something artistic, the, the commercial, not the commercial, but the kind of like, how am I going to live element is obviously foremost in, in people's mind. And you gone on to TV work and production. Was that the sort of next phase after that? I mean, I did, you know, I did, I did even at the time I was making, I was an assistant at a small production company and we did development, you know, and, which is a horrible world. Actually, it's, you know, we were, it was a small company, but it was, it was, um, it was two partners. And one of them was uh, Anthony Edwards, who was on ER. He was a star of ER at the time. Oh, yeah, yeah. In Top Gun as well. Yeah, exactly. He was Goose in Top Gun and he was in Miracle Mile and all these great, you know, great movies. Wow. <laughs> and uh, so he was, at the time, he was on ER, which was the number one show on television. He was the number one, he was the highest paid actor on dramatic TV. You know, Seinfeld and Friends was getting a lot, you know, they were getting a million dollars an episode and he was way less, but he was the highest paid actor on dramatic TV, incredibly respected. Like every actor just loved, you know, and loves Tony, you know, to this day, really thinks he's incredible. And in seven years, we managed to get three projects made. So, all of that stuff behind you, we were, we were, the company had a deal with Warner Brothers, still could not get anything made. It's just, it's such a difficult, develop, film development is such a difficult world that it was really, uh, it was a really big learning experience that that's not something that I would want, it's not something I would want to do again, you know, to kind of get trapped in that mm. world of pitching projects, this and that, and dealing with agents and managers. Yeah, yeah, so it's yeah, kind yeah. Of just, Production hell. Oh, it's because it's not, but it's not even, if it was production, it would be great, but it's like, not even pre-production development it's just so demoralizing Ooh, no thank you well we'll move on from that because obviously you know when i got in contact i definitely wanted to talk to you about jodorowsky's dune so yeah i mean was that something that again had a, a sort of long long-standing interest for you the book or jodorowsky as a director what how did the sort of development of that project uh, 
take shape? It was, you know, I, I had, I was an admirer of his, of his films. I liked El Topo. I love, you know, I love El Topo. I love Holy Mountain. Um, and uh, when I learned about the fact that he had this sort of lost film, which was a version of Dune, you know, 10 years before David Lynch's version. And, you know, so when I learned that, so you kind of add, okay, Dune plus Holy Mountain and El Topo. And then you look at all of the elements that he was going to bring into his film, all, you know, Salvador Dali and Orson Welles and this team of artists and what they accomplished. It was sort of fascinating. And at the time, you know, before the documentary, this material was not really available. That story was talked about, you know, spoken about here and there, but nobody really had the full picture of it. So the documentary, I think, came about really because I wanted to learn more. I wanted to learn more personally. And I also, I guess I felt that if I wanted to learn more, maybe other people would too. But it was really just a way to learn about the story and to hear more about it. So I just kind of contacted Chodorowsky out of the blue. Again, no contact. You know, I had no proper introduction to him, no back channel. It wasn't like, you know, I knew someone that knew him. Yeah, yeah. Um, Somebody got you an in. No, no, it just contacted Yeah, nothing. No, zero. Yeah, it was just like, okay, let me just take a shot and see what happens. But it was really just because it sounded so fascinating. Um, mm. It kind of began there and I didn't know where it would go. I didn't know what it would become. But So was, it, was he open to doing something with you fairly early on or was there quite a few conversations? What was his sort of initial reaction to, to being contacted? It wasn't, you know, overnight, but it was very, very quick. He really, when I contacted him, he got back to me and said that if I wanted to speak, I need to come to Paris and we need to meet face to face. So I said, okay, great. And I went there and it was really quick. In that first meeting, we met maybe for 10 minutes, maybe 15 minutes. And he just said, okay, great. Sounds, sounds excellent. You know, you should meet, you should meet Michelle Sadu, you know, who's the producer of, of his Dune. And, you know, you guys need to meet because he has all the artwork and he's without him, you can't tell the story, but he was really behind it really from the beginning. It didn't take much convincing. Later on, he did some interview somewhere, maybe at a film festival, I don't remember. And he said something like the only reason, he said something to the effect of the only reason that he agreed to do the documentaries because he thought I would never finish it. <laughs> so he was kind of, I guess, felt free to tell these stories and do these things because who cares? Yeah, no one's yeah, gonna yeah. see it anyway. So I think that's pretty, that's pretty hilarious. But maybe he must have thought you were a spiritual warrior, though. Man, that's I like to think that. I like to think that. Yes, he saw me and was like, "That's my yes, exactly. My my newest spiritual warrior. That's it." <laughs> Obviously, when you met Michelle Sadu, and then you wanted to get your hands on this planning book. Obviously, have a look at that. I mean, one of the great things about the movie is the way that you've animated the the storyboard and the artwork, which gives the documentary a sense of what the film might look like, but without without having to sort of bring in a load of animators and try and, you know, almost remake the film yourself. You know what I mean? I think it's beautifully done in that sense. So, I mean, how did you do that? Was that, did you just scan the book and, and then sort of do it in the edit yourself? Or did you bring artists in to kind of do copies? How did that work? I mean, the book is amazing because the book is a collection of everything, but the book is, it's a copy, right? The book is not the original stuff. So the quality in the book is limited. You know, if I was to scan, you know, we, we film the book, there's lots of interesting, you know, flipping through the book and all that, but the quality of the images in the book wouldn't really be enough to animate or create something with, without really adding to it. As you say, without bringing in somebody to kind of redo it, what we were 
blessed with was the originals. You know, so the book is, I guess, like A4 size pages, something like that. But the original storyboards are are massive. I mean, they're a meter by maybe a hundred centimeters by eighty centimeters, something like so that. So they're proper art, you know, artworks in that sense. Yeah, yeah proper yeah, yeah. pages. You know, so through that, yeah, yeah. you know, that way because each so each storyboard page of these sheets has the nine images, right? Nine images that are on the that are in the book. I think it's nine, if I'm remembering. Three by three, I think. But they're massive. So those I could take and those I scanned really high, you know, really high quality. And those I would, so that way it would not only get, because it's not just the images, it's, especially because Mobius had passed away. Mobius was sick and Mobius passed away. So he's not in the film. And it ended up being a way to have him in the film by really feeling, it's not just the images of those storyboards, it's, it's that texture of the paper. That makes a difference to me. The fact that it's, it's pencil lines, like it's really, you see his hand. It's it's true pencil on paper. In the book, it looks like it's ink. Just the way the contrast is, it looks like it's black lines. But in reality, it's just graphite. It's 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 incredible. So those I would take, those I would scan really high res. Sometimes I would do really rudimentary animation just to kind of get the idea. But I would send them. Then I got an animator who was based in LA, and I would you know send him these high res scans, and we would. He was the real creator of the animation and everything. But he could do. He could keep the integrity of the physical object of the of the storyboards, and I think that's I think that's more interesting than doing some sort of than taking those images and doing some sort of you know CGI type thing. It's like it wasn't about as you said, it wasn't about recreating it or making it what it would be like today. It's it was about just giving it giving those images and those ideas enough life where they could move and you could see things. And then your brain does the rest of the work and says, oh, that's the idea. And this is what it would have been like. And you close your eyes and you imagine what it really would have been like. And that's the ultimate movie because your imagination is way stronger than anything, certainly stronger than anything I could have done. You know? And if I did something, if I, I, I didn't want to have too heavy of a hand with the animation because then it's my ideas and that's not yeah 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 correct because it's it's not frank's dune it's jodorowsky's dune i mean it's about paying tribute to him and his team and their you know and their ideas when you were sort of working and talking to people like ross and o'bannon and geiger and obviously you know as you said mobius was, was sick but even even before the end of the film when you make the very specific argument about the influence of the designs on sci-fi that would yet to come, you do get a sense that this is almost like a formative design school for science fiction of the next 20 years, you know? And I mean, was that something that they were sort of saying to you? Like things like, oh, yeah, no, I've, I've drawn this and then you see this over here. And then obviously with Geiger, you know, th there's the obvious alien connection. You can see these guys working on, on alien. But was that something that alongside, I mean, it's the two strands of the story, isn't it? There's sort of Jodorowsky, and his vision and his ability or, or his inability to eventually get the film made. And then the notion of, of the designs that were were going to be the, the basically the aesthetic of, of sci-fi in the 80s and 90s and beyond, you know? Well, you know, that's something that none of us knew about when we started the project. I mean, really, you know, none of us knew. Mm. None of us, there was two things none of us knew. None of us knew the influence that the artwork had 
until, you know, we didn't realize that until we saw the images and started going through it and said, oh my God, look at this, look at that. We didn't realize that. And we didn't realize the real beauty of the story, which is Jodorowsky's perspective, you know, that it's not a failure, that this is beautiful. This didn't happen, but it did happen because look at all the things are created. And that's, those are the two things that just sort of happened organically. Nobody pointed anything out to us in the artwork because I don't think they even think about it. I don't think. You know, Jodorowsky's never said to me, ah, that, this person stole this, this person stole that. He never even, never crossed his mind. The only information we got from any of the interview subjects was Giger because it was before, we interviewed him before Prometheus came out. And he said that, uh, the, that Ridley Scott contacted him to do some preliminary designs of that sort of crazy big mountain thing in, in the film. And he did some designs and Ridley Scott was like, mm, I don't really like them so much. And basically what he ended up using was the stuff from Jodorowsky's Dune. So he was the only person right. that yeah, yeah, told yeah. us that. So we knew kind of like, you know, when Prometheus was done, then we can look at those images and say, oh my God, that's exactly the Harkonnen castle, exactly. But anything else that we found, the, you know, Star Wars, the frames that look like Star Wars, the stuff that looks like Raiders of the Lost Ark, Flash Gordon, Masters of the Universe, all those weird things, or just things that going through the images, we would say, that looks familiar. Oh, that looks like this. That looks like that. And we would sort of compare and it kind of, then we just kind of kept like a folder of those images. Like, look, this looks like an influence of this. This is reminiscent of this. This is an exact copy of this scene. And then we would sort of collect them all and then kind of figure out, okay, where would they go in the film? But it really happened just, just from us looking at it, which is how obvious it is. You know, nobody really has to say, look in the corner of that frame. No, it's like, it's there, you know, <laughs> it's, it's there, really, yeah. it's in front of you on almost yeah. every page. It's sort of striking. As I was watching it, one of the things that I thought, and also this relates to thinking about El Topo and Holy Mountain and what they actually look like aesthetically. I wonder really if this film went into actual production, how much it would have come up against the limits of technology. And really, I, I doubt it would have had the the polish, let's say, in inverted commas, of something like Star Wars in 77. And whether actually it's better that it remained on the page, because then that this mythology kind of, you know, remains around it in that sense. Oh, I think definitely. I mean, definitely. I mean, you know, the technology, the technological limits were there. I mean, even now everybody looks at everything differently. You know, never, now everybody wants their Star Wars, their version of this, their version of that. I mean, this is before Star Wars. And even when Lucas was making Star Wars, he was getting, you know, attacked by the studios, you know, no, and, and his friends. There's all these stories of him doing test screenings of Star Wars and that all of his friends were like, literally like, you know, Francis Ford Coppola and Brian De Palma were like, what is this? This is garbage. This is the worst thing ever, you know? Nobody could understand what he was going for. So now if we're talking Jodorowsky's Dune several years before that, it would have been completely different. What I think, though, is that I don't think that Jodorowsky would have gone. I don't think he was aiming for anything that felt realistic like Lucas did. Even now when Jodorowsky makes movies, like in 2013, he made Dance of Reality. And there's this whole scene in Dance of Reality where he and this boy are walking down this pier past all of these characters that we had met, that we'd met earlier in the film, 
but they're not really there. They're literally cardboard cutouts of them, you know, and like, you know, photographs of them, but cut out life size and they're kind of weaving their way through them. And it's completely bizarre, but it's totally unique. And I think that's an example of what Jodorowsky would have done on his version of Dune. I don't think he would have done that. I don't think he would have had cardboard cutouts of people, but he would have done things that were completely different, completely unique, and maybe more like theatrical in terms of stage theatrical as opposed to film theatrical. He would have done something completely different, completely unique. So I would never compare it to something like Star Wars, which feels real. I mean, it feels mm. like it's a real world. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. But I think his thing, I think, would have been completely different, completely psychedelic with the colors and the costumes. It just would have been, I think, something incomparable. I think that's true. And it sort of, it suggests then that, that maybe there isn't this alternative universe where Dune gets made and becomes the template for blockbusters that Star Wars does. Because I think that, you know, all the influences of the avant-garde and surrealism and all of those kind of things would have just, it would have become a, like, like, you know, a, an absolute cult masterpiece rather than, you know, it would have shaped blockbusters for, for years to come. Ironically, because it didn't get made, it's it shaped block, it has shaped sci-fi and blockbusters you know, because it probably more because it didn't get made. I mean, I think that there's, I think there's multiple ways to go. And I think either any way that you look at it, I feel that his mm. Dune is incredibly influential. Like the world, that the universe that we live in where it didn't happen, the movie is incredibly influential. Somehow, even though nobody had that book, somehow the images from there got out and reached into other films somehow, mysteriously, through Jodorowsky magic. If there's another universe where he made the film and it was, like we're saying, it was totally psychedelic, totally weird, totally avant-garde, maybe that would have been a huge flop. And if it was a huge flop, then I can guarantee that Lucas never would have been made, would have been able to make Star Wars. Because yeah. then the studio would have had no belief in it. They would have said, look at that guy's movie. You're not going to do this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good point. So without his Star Wars nothing else happens in that time. We would not be looking at the Marvel movies that we have today, all these things. So for good and bad, it would be interesting. It would be an interesting world to not have that. If Chodorowsky's movie was, was successfully made and crazy psychedelic and avant-garde, maybe it would have had something in it that audiences would have gravitated to. Maybe it wouldn't have been so niche. Maybe it wouldn't have been mm. a gazillion dollar moneymaker, but maybe it would have been really successful. And then maybe... Studios would say, hey, we gave this maniac a chance with his crazy movie. Let's give these other maniacs a chance. Because we're talking the early to the mid-70s when studio filmmaking was very different, when they were taking more chances with things. So had he been allowed to take his chance and it was successful, maybe we would have had much more interesting, less cookie-cutter films that come after. I mean, I think that there's either way, I feel that no matter which path we're on, I think it all, still all roads lead back to Jodorowsky's version of Dune. No, no, yeah, that's very well put. Um, probably the, the, the biggest affinity between your first film between uh, NYHC and this is the use of interviews, use of, you know, talking heads to kind of tell the story and comment on 
what went on, but also the personalities involved. And it was an interesting choice, I thought, to sort of a bold choice even to to sort of start off with Nicholas Winding Refn because he's a you know he's a director who turns people on and turns people off. I re- I really like it. I love his his movies. But I mean, I, I wondered why you'd made that choice specifically. Was it about trying to ground Jodorowsky? Maybe for the un- uninitiated, you know what I mean? A sort of entry point for, for with somebody who, who is kind of familiar to contemporary audiences? I mean, it was, it was probably something to do with that. And it was certainly something to do with, you know, with their relationship. Yeah, know, yeah, yeah. That, you know, he would not be, that Refn is not somebody in the film who is speaking about somebody he's never met. He's speaking about a personal story, like I was in his apartment Late at night, he pulled out the book, and so and so. So Refn is not, you know, he's a he's a well known, successful successful director who has a connection to this guy. So it kind of hit two notes for us, you know, where he could speak about something with authority, but also, you know, you can look at him and say, oh, he made such and such films, which are really which are really cool. So that's why he's in there. And then we chose Richard Stanley, who's the other outside director in the film, because. Not because he has any connection to Jodorowsky, because they've never met as far as I even know, but he has an experience that's, that informs who he is. So even though we never talk about his experience of the island of Dr. Moreau, it's there. And if you know who Richard Stanley is, you can kind of say, oh, that's, you know, that's the connection. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. This is what the territory we're in. And if you don't even, and if you don't know that story, it's still interesting because he has so many you know, he was this guy in this crazy hat and this mustache who's, you know, saying all these wild things. So either way, I think it kind of, you know, whether you know him or not, even with Refn, like, I don't know if, if either Refn or Richard Stanley are the most household names, you know, the biggest household names. They're not, yeah, yeah, yeah you know, yeah. they're not celebrities exactly outside of the world that maybe, you know, you or I exist in. Yeah, for know? sure, for sure. Maybe we, we should talk more directly then about uh, Jodorowsky as the sort of, you know, in, in the context of the cult of the auteur, you know, that and having Olson Wells in the movie is another filmmaker who kind of fell out of with Hollywood because he was this kind of overblown maverick and wouldn't do what studios want. And clearly there's a sort of underpinning of that where Jodorowsky had his his dream, his, you know, his vision, his sense of what the film was going to be and that you know, crashed into the realities of Hollywood filmmaking and the studios and all of those kind of thing. What's interesting, I, th- I think it's kind, it's slightly ambiguous in the film, which is really nice that whether from his perspective now as an older man, he's looking back and y- he never actually says, you know, ever, oh yeah, I, could, I could, could have compromised to get it made. It was like, no, this is my dream. This is it. So, I mean, I just wondered where you sit on, the, you know, as a director yourself and somebody who knows how difficult it is to get things made. Were you kind of like thinking this is really, really great stuff, but, you know, here's a guy whose his, his lack of compromise clearly was always going to, you know, crash and burn in the end. How do I say it? Um, I think the power of the story and the power of him is the fact that he was not going to compromise. Because if, you know, he, he had very specific ideas about everything. Oh, his son is going to be the lead, which would have been incredible. I mean, if you really, if you really look at it, like I, you know, I love the new version of Dune. I think Chalamet is amazing in it. I think he's the best Paul in any existing, existing version of Dune. But had Brontus Jodorowsky as a child 
12, 13 years old been the lead? That would have been incredible because that's what it is. The book, it's a boy. You know, it's not a, you know, Kyle McLaughlin was, I think he was young, but he came across as much older in the Lynch version. Prontus was a boy and that would have been incredible. So all, you know, casting Dolly, casting Orson Welles, if any of, if he had gotten to make his movie, but the studio or the financier was like, mm, no, don't cast Brontus, cast such and such person. Don't cast Orson Welles, put in this guy instead. No to Pink Floyd, put in Toto instead or whatever. Once you make that compromise, then it's, then it's over, you know, for him. You know, other people, I work well with other people. I work well with, you know, a give and take with an editor, with my cinematographer, composer, animator, everybody. That's just the way that I work. But I guess I don't have the, the skill or the talent um, or the courage or the, um, the self, uh, self-belief. Self-confidence or I don't the know. Self-confidence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, yeah, that, that I don't have, I suppose that I also don't have the self-confidence that-, that Or the Alejandro ego maybe has. even, dare I say. Or the <laughs> ego, or the ego. But, don't, but if, to be a director, to be a director of something like that, you've got to have ego. I mean, it has to. I'm sure. I'm sure if Denis Villeneuve went on set and was like, "Oh, I don't know, you know, maybe I'm not so good at this. Get out of here!" I mean, there's an army of people that are working behind him, and they're following the director's lead as to what is this movie going to be because they don't understand it. They're working on it piece by piece, filming it out of sequence, building something that hasn't been shot. That's you know, everything is nobody sees the full picture except for them. And Jodorowsky had a full picture. There was no compromises. I believe there was no compromises in Holy Mountain. There was no compromises in El Topo. There was, I know for a fact, there was zero compromises in Dance of Reality, which is my favorite, you know, of his, of his films. He, he works in a totally different way. And, and his goal was not to make the movie. His goal was not to be on set to make, his goal was to do something amazing. He wanted to make, his, he wanted his film to be a profit to change the world. Yeah, I was just gonna say that. And it did. Even though it didn't get made, he he succeeded. His project was a profit. His his pro- his project changed the world, changed people's lives. We're here. If he made the movie, I don't know if we would be sitting here almost 50 years later talking about it. Maybe, but not in this context, not in the context of how incredible it is. You know, it's it's something. You know, by him holding on to his beliefs and his ideals, that's what makes it. You know, once you, once you compromise, once he compromises, and compromise is not good. Taking advice from people, taking other people's opinions, working with them, which he did. I mean, he didn't sit and say, Giger, you paint this. Foss, you paint this. He said, go. Even he says, like, I would get them excited and I would say, go and create. But to have somebody tell him, no, you can't do the movie this way. It's got to be this way. This has to be this. That was not good. That was not going to work. The artists all say in the documentary, you know, he he actually made me want to go and and, and do it. You know what I mean? There was an inspiring kind of uh, motivational force coming off the guy. So yeah, I mean, it's clear it's clear that he had he had that effect. I mean, one of the interesting things about that sense of the film as a profit, and I think the way that you've contextualized that is correct in terms of the influence of the filmmaking. But for him, it seemed to almost go deeper than that it was like he thought he was going to make a film that would have almost a transcendental impact on the people who'd seen it you know what i mean it was literally going to sort of change consciousness you know and, and that relates to the psychedelia and you know and, and all that stuff of the of the time but and it it seemed to me in his in the interviews he still sort of 
he still believes that. It, it, it was not something that he was looking back and saying, yeah, I was young, I was a bit... He's kind of like, you know, he wasn't backing down on that, even as an, an older man, you know? I mean, he still lives his life that way. I mean, that's, you know, that wasn't yeah. for show. That wasn't something that he only did in the 70s and then gave it up and became like, you know, an insurance broker, <laughs> you know, stockbroker. Right. I mean, he, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. he lived that life. When I, when we started shooting... He was, um, he hadn't made, we started, when we started shooting the documentary, he had not made a movie for 20 something years. He couldn't get financing, um, just wasn't happening for him. So he did so many other things. Like he's, you know, he wrote, he writes these comic books. He's, he does these, uh, speeches. He's, uh, probably the world's expert on the tarot cards. And when we started shooting, he would, um, one of the things he was doing at that time in his life, he doesn't do it anymore. Um, but one of the things that he was doing at that time was um, every, I think it was every Wednesday, he would go to a cafe down the street from his apartment and he would sit there for a couple of hours and he would do free tarot card readings for anybody who wanted it. And he would accept, you know, he would do it for free. He would accept no payment, except at the end of the reading, he would hold out his hand and the person that he did the reading for would have to take their finger and write thank you, but you know, not really write it, but sort of just spell it out on the palm of his hand. That was his payment. So he lives on a different plane, I think, than we do, you know? So he would never, I don't think he would ever look back and say, oh, you know, I was so naive back then. I mean, he's, that's what keeps him going. He's 92 and he's still doing things because he has that unique perspective and outlook and opinion on everything. Sure. I imagine that you've, you know, you may have done uh, quite a few interviews like this or been contacted since the new Dune came out. I mean, and you've already said that you liked the the Villeneuve version. And it was such a funny story in the movie about when Jodorowsky went to see Lynch's Dune. And I, you know, I know that that film is massively flawed, but I've got a lot of sympathy for it. You know what I mean? I think it's really interesting in, in, in a lot of ways. But yeah, I mean... What's your sort of take on, you know, the Lynch and now, and now Villeneuve? I know you said you, you, you've liked it. They're, they're sort of imaginings of this. I mean, the Lynch movie, I mean, it's sort of, people speak about it now like, oh, it's really, it's really great. I mean, it's, it's not. I mean, it's really, it's not. And, and, and he doesn't think so. David Lynch doesn't think so. It's not a David Lynch film. You know, if you look at, if you take all of his films and you put them on a shelf, which one doesn't belong. And that's Dune because it's not a David Lynch film. He had great idea. I think the things that work in there are his creations. There's a, the milking of the cat, all this weird stuff. It doesn't come from the book. That's pure David Lynch. And all that stuff is really successful. But he was, he was exactly, I still don't understand why he was hired to make Dune. I mean, he's exactly Jodorowsky. He had made two tiny independent features he made uh, Eraserhead and, and The Elephant Man. I mean, Eraserhead's tiny, Elephant Man's bigger, but they're very intimate. They're small films. Who would look at a guy who made those movies and say, that guy should make this sprawling science fiction epic where it's, you know, there's a crew of thousands of people working in the desert. That's a very different skill set than what he has. He makes intimate things, not, not Dune. So, and so not only that, but then he... He didn't have a producer like Michel Sadu. Michel Sadu is amazing. He is he's such a great person and a great producer who gives everything to his director. Like he's just there to support them. Dino De Laurentiis was not there to support Lynch. He just wasn't. There's 
again, I don't know if I don't know if it's true. I've heard stories that, you know, of course, on that massive film, they were like behind schedule, of course. And that De Laurentiis would come to the set and he would say, oh, you're behind schedule. He would take the script. He would rip out 10 pages and say, now you're back on schedule. How can you be successful when doing that? There's just no way. There's just no way. Of course, you know, Jodorowsky does not like Lynch's Dune for personal reasons, because it was a very painful thing, you know, of all people to make it, as he says, it was Lynch. Like, what the heck? If it was some jobber, who cares? But it was David Lynch. Like, oh my God, he was terrified. He spent, I'm sure, I'm sure Alejandro spent years from the announcement of Lynch's Dune to when it came out with like ulcers, I'm sure. Because it's a hideous, it's a hideous experience. And then it came out. And as he says, you know, hilariously in the movie, it was horrible. He also, he also said that it cured his eczema, that he was so nervous about it that he broke out in a full rash. And that as he was in the theater watching it, the, the rash just went away because it was all nerves. It just, it just left him. So he thinks that Lynch's film cured him of this rash. So, you know, and he doesn't blame Lynch. He says it was, you know, I, he says, I, I love David Lynch. I believe in David Lynch. This was the, it was the producer that did that. It was the producer's fault. And they've worked together since, you know, during those 20 years that Jodorowsky was unable to make a movie. He was, one of the projects he was trying to get off the ground, I believe was going to be produced by, by Lynch. I think it was an El Topo, you know, a sequel or something like that. Um, so they have a relationship. I don't think they're close, but, you know, they have a relationship. But his... I think what Alejandro says in the film is very honest. Where he says it's, it's maybe it's not a love, maybe it's not a beautiful thought, but he felt that way. He says I'm human. It's a human thought. Like, of course, yeah, that's the one time. Ah, Jodo is human. He's not, you know, he's not just a, a spirit. He is actually a real person. And then you have the new version, which I, which I loved. I thought it was incredible. I went to go see it. You know, first screening on opening day. It's very different. It's not at all. What Alejandro was going to do, it's, I mean, completely different. There's some character names that are the same, but, you know. Yeah, it sits, sits in the blockbuster structures, doesn't it, really? In a way. I mean, it's, it's, it's certainly not a Marvel movie, that's for sure. It's not this, you know, poppy thing. It's sort of, it's deep and there's, you know, moments of horror in it, you know, like psychological horror between the son and the mother, between Paul and Jessica. I mean, really like, I mean, yes, the effects are incredible. I mean, really, like I walked out thinking that I had traveled to another world for two and a half hours. All that's amazing, but the performances are what make it. I mean, they're incredible. I mean, they're mm. truly- Yeah, yeah, yeah. He carries it, does Chalamet very oh, well, I he think. He really does. He's, oh my God, he's amazing. He really carries it. And that's a big, and it's just like Paul, right? In the story, like there's a lot put on Paul's shoulders and there was a lot put on Timothy Chalamet's shoulders. And he really, he was really successful. He really went above and beyond, I think. I thought he was breathtaking in it, just truly amazing. But it's a completely different thing than, than Jodorowsky's Dune, you know. And I know, and I've seen, I saw an interview somewhere online of, you know, Villeneuve talking about Jodorowsky's Dune and how much he liked the documentary and how, how much he likes Alejandro and that he hopes one day to meet him. So that's a, you know, that was a really cool thing also. I would love to see them get together. Well, listen, Frank. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak to me. It's been it's been really good. Are you are you, are you working on anything specific right now, film wise? Yeah, totally different. I'm doing uh, 
I'm hopefully finishing up now. Uh, it's been a couple of years I've been working on it, but I'm uh, hopefully finishing up a documentary based in the Dominican Republic about a, a music school. It's the world's only bachata music school. And bachata, as I learned, I did not know this going in, it's uh, this Dominican style of music. And it's the, it's, I think it's the world's most popular genre of Spanish language music. And I had never heard of it before, like never heard of it. And it's this very Dominican thing. And there's this school in this very poor area on the North shore, which is um, a free school. So any kid can come and learn how to play guitar, sing, uh, learn percussion, learn songwriting. And it's a way to teach these kids, you know, when kids learn how to play music, they learn how to think in a completely, to think and communicate in a completely different way, in a completely different language. And it's a way to spread their culture, you know, that, that this very specific Dominican music, um, that these kids can take what they've learned and share that around the world and not some bastardized version of it, but the real, the real stuff. So it's sort of this, so it's this documentary about, uh, it's kind of about the school, but it's more, it's not really, it's about uh, the kids. And we focus on four kids mainly and sort of follow them in their lives. And there's no, it's very different than Jodorowsky's Dune or NOHC. There's no sit down interviews. There's nothing. It's just purely verite. And it's just about these kids and their parents and their home lives and this, and this music that they're uh, learning, this amazing music. So it's kind of a very different thing, but I'm not going to wood. I I think we're onto something. I think it's something very special. And I think it's, um, I take most inspiration in making it from the film Streetwise. I don't know if you've ever seen Streetwise, um, but it's kind of like Streetwise with amazing music in a way. So it's, you know, it's kind of that genre, uh, I guess, is the way, is the way I would put it. So hopefully, uh, hopefully, you know, this, this coming year, hopefully in a few months, we'll be done, knock on wood, you know. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, I really look forward to seeing that and lots of luck with, uh, you know, getting it finished and getting it out there. Uh, yeah, thanks so much, Frank. It's been fantastic. And, you know, I, lo- I really love the really love the movie. Oh, great. Thank you so much. And thanks, thanks so much for inviting me on. It was really, it was really fun conversation. It was really my pleasure. So there we have it. Thanks very much to Frank for giving me so much time to talk about his his filmmaking and yeah, just really nice, insightful on kind of, I like the whole stuff about his filmmaking background and his relationship to sort of, you know, film school, fil- film education and then into his, his filmmaking. I really do rate Jodorowsky's Dune. I think it's a really interesting documentary and with the whole animation of the uh, you know of the designs and everything just just give give it a, a a really interesting aesthetic feel i think um but what did you make of it neil yeah i loved it again you know i thought it was i thought it was a really great doc and yeah it was i was not surprised but i kind of kind of really impressed by this to the level of care the aesthetic care and the kind of the presentation of the film like you you really get a sense of what that film would have been and would have looked like you know in a way that i think is yeah kind of makes you feel really bittersweet you know and i think that when you listen to the interview 
the thing that, that he talks about in terms of getting wanting to do the project is a kind of curiosity and I think that that curiosity is really re- resonant in the film you know like he's really interested in seeing this stuff and sharing this stuff um there's that kind of good egoless sort of direction of like isn't this exciting you know isn't this cool but also isn't it like why why didn't it get made you know yeah 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 that's right I really I really respond to that kind of filmmaking one of the things I loved about the film was just how at peace Jodorowsky is with it you know like I think that's really interesting I think that mm. you know I was listening to some in- interviews recently about Mike Lee you know and he's always kind of been a bit of a grumpy old man but there's always that that kind of bitterness that he's not he's not got getting the money to do the things he wants to do he's not getting the recognition you know he kind of feels a bit put out by how he's perceived and the fact that he's not supported whereas Jodorowsky's way of making films he's kind of he kind of knows that going in that there's I'm going to make this film my way and if it's not going to happen my way it's not going to happen at all and that's the way it's going to be he doesn't seem to look back and go oh I wish I'd have played the game a bit more you know like and I think that is really exciting because I think that you know that places him in that very rare sphere of filmmakers who are truly independent you know regardless of this fact this film would have been a billion dollars his mindset you know is like we're just going to get together our spiritual warriors and we're going to make this thing you know and it's like that's so great you're taking this huge property and and approaching it like ed wood approached making movies like I, i just found that absolutely fascinating and i just loved watching him talk about it you know and it was sad but i but i never i didn't feel it didn't feel like a tragedy because the person is kind of at peace with with who he is as an artist, which is so, so rare, I think, and just a great person to watch, you know, and just the amount of coincidences that, that, that happened. I go here and here is Austin Wells in this restaurant and you're just like, okay, what a storyteller. Yeah, I, I thought it was great. And I th- yeah, and I, th- I thought I thought your interview with Frank was 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 great. You know, I think one of the things about, about doing the podcast is that th- it felt like an interview that is exactly why the podcast came about. You know, like this was a film and a filmmaker from a, f- a few years ago, which... Is kind of on the periphery now because because of a much bigger, much more mainstream film. But to me, this doc and this filmmaker Frank just much more interesting to to kind of hear from and 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 hear about because I think that what's Denis Villeneuve going to say that you know like other than thanks for giving me all this money, you know? And I just I really really resonated with 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 what Frank was saying about his approach to filmmaking and his journey. I thought it was great. Yeah, really, I really love that interview. I think it's I think it's a great interview. Cool. Well, thanks, man. I appreciate that. And yeah, I mean, it's it, what I love, just sort of thinking back about it now, what I loved about Jodorowsky as well was, and I think a lot of us could kind of learn this a little bit, which is like you go and meet somebody and if it's like, if you're not sort of on board, if you don't feel like that, that person is clicking with you or, you know, you, they, they treat you in a certain way of cynicism, it's like, sorry, that's it. I know in like two minutes, you're not on, you're not part of my crew and it's like it's funny I think we're in thrall aren't we to today to kind of names and the idea of a name and it's like we'll get this person in and you know we don't work with names particularly (laughs) like huge names very often and we've had when we have we've had kind of good experiences most of the time it's like oh you know people who've come on have got what we what the way that we do it which is great And and I just think that I mean there's been a couple of interviews that I've had probably in five years where I've gone I'm not putting this out because this person didn't really get where I was coming from. But yeah, it was great that Frank did. And I think, you know, he was, he was really up for talking. And, and, you know, he sort of said afterwards, it's sometimes it's hard to talk about the movie because you're just getting asked the same stuff over and over again. And he was, and he was very nice in sort of saying, yeah, it wasn't, it was a proper conversation. So uh, yeah, I really enjoyed it. 
Yeah, and also thanks for talking to him about NYHC because there's some good stuff for my book in there um, as well. Yeah, I thought you'd like that. Yeah, I thought that was a really good doc as well Like, because so much of the docs are about the decade before and very few of them go into the violence. Like, I thought the, the section on violence um, was really interesting because it's kind of present mm. but, but sort of skirted over. So, yeah, really... And it's it's yeah it's, it's around. I think I saw it on YouTube. It's well worth checking out. And I got into the Puerto Rican hardcore band District Nine, who are great. Yeah, I love them. Oh yeah, really yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it was really interesting for me to sort of watch NYHC from the 21st century and all the talk about you know masculinity today. And you know, we kind of got into this, but not too much because you know, obviously, sort of time was of, of the essence. But that sense of the sense of DIY culture in the 80s and 90s, and it being kind of enclosed is very different to, to culture today. So it's it that that sense of them being able to sort of work through their 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 issues, let's say, you know, inverted commas. And it being problematic, don't get me wrong, and there's violence and dysfunctionality and, and all of that kind of stuff. But you know, if fast forward to all of those problems are still around today with a lot of young men who are disenfranchised by society. But now it's all, you know, they're all in vi- playing video games in their bedrooms or, you know, um, putting stuff out on the internet that's really problematic. And I don't want to generalize. I don't want to say all these guys would have been, you know, queuing on. But there's a sense in which there's a correlation, I think, between the dysfunction of masculinity back then and it reaching the boundaries of what that hardcore scene was and what's available today for, for young men to express their disf- dissatisfaction. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I think, I think, I think that's a really... I think it's a really good point. I think, you know, that interesting watching it and then thinking of something like Fight Club, you know, and, and that the, these were those kind of self-policing safe spaces. And and they, some of the participants talk about that, like, you know, yeah, my life sucks, you know, poor, working class, blue collar, American. But the, this release, this ability to go and physically release to the music, it was so vital for so many young men. And then what happens is, is that the scene opens up, you know, so now the internet and kind of the this kind of the merging of scenes means that you get you get shows with with all different types of people and it, it no longer becomes the space because the space has a judgment on it which wasn't there before you know because outsiders to the scene and and outsiders to the culture of the people who are you know part of the scene they don't they don't really understand it they don't see it the same way so the the, the freedom to go and literally like you know pummel yourself to sort of you know um escapism is you know and and i think it's still there i mean it's hardcore is like kind of like metal you know it's a scene that that never dies but i certainly think that this it's not it's certainly not this it, it can't it can't operate in the same way because the judgment on the problematics and the judgment on some of the bands is so is so pointed and so clear that people just it kind of drives people further underground and like you say further online further away from so so the good stuff that those scenes that you know, and that, that's the same with punk and the same with, you know, the mod scenes and stuff like that, which begat problematic elements, you know, that they just they end up fizzling out, don't they? Because it's there's just too much judgment and not a real understanding of what they're actually doing as a function alongside the the bad stuff. No, absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah, definitely check out both of those uh, films. We recommend them both. So, um, yeah, that's just about it for today please continue to support us on social media if you enjoy the show you know a, a review or a rating it really helps us out um, whether it's on apple podcasts or on good pods or Podchaser, any of those sites that you want to review the podcast on we'd really appreciate it get in touch with us on social media on twitter we're at cinematologists the email is cinematologists at gmail.com 
And of course, now we are going to go over to our post-show cocktail party on our for our Patreon members. And Neil, we're, we're going to talk a little bit, I think, about... I don't know whether sort of broadly we're going to talk about kind of adaptation, remake, and the concept of originality, I think, you know, because it ties in a little bit to that idea of, you know, the remake of Dune and what's the original Dune. And with, with films like West Side Story just coming out now, which has got a lot of attention on Twitter, and you get the, you know, you get the that, that reaction, which is, oh, why are they remaking? Why are they remaking this? And, and you know, recently the remake of A Star Is Born you know, is another cycle of that that films, and we're in we're in a culture which is very much about sort of rebooting ideas that we've seen before. So we're going to discuss that a little bit. Yes. Yep, we are, and I'm looking forward to it. Cool. So we'll head over there now. Um, but for those of you who've enjoyed the show, we've got one more to go before Christmas. But for this episode, this has been the Cinematologist Podcast. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.